Welcome to the Real Life Webinar. Whether you're experiencing hardship, searching for encouragement and motivation, or simply want a refreshing reminder that you're not alone, we are so glad that you're here. Our hope is that you'll find these discussions about real life topics helpful and discover practical ways to apply this information and advice to your life. We are here to help you find real solutions to real problems. Welcome to Real Life, presented by Chestnut Ridge Church. I'm your host, Jim Matuga. Today on Real Life, we'll be discussing the challenges, issues, and concerns related to the foster care initiative. Our goal is to give you some professional, practical, and biblical advice to help you understand the full experience of a child in foster care. And we have a great panel of experts lined up for you today. First, we have Carmen Abreu. Carmen is a mental health therapist with Wellspring Family Services at their Morgantown location. Carmen, thanks for being on our panel today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yes, uh, us too. Thank you so much. We also have Megan Petak. Megan is a licensed professional counselor at Momentum Couples and Family Therapy in Uniontown, Pennsylvania. Megan, it's great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Can't wait. Absolutely. And finally, we have Pastor Tim Santon. He is the lead pastor at River Ridge Church in Charleston, West Virginia. Matt is a pastor, but he's also an active foster parent and an advocate for children in foster care. Pastor Matt, we're glad you're here as, as well. Thanks, Jim. And my name is Matt, not Tim. You're going to say Tim Herring, but we have the same receding hairline. So Did I, I say Tim? <laughs> Almost. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, Matt, great, uh, great to have you with us, guys. This, this is just awesome of giving your, you know, giving your time and your talents to this important conversation. I just want to jump right in. Obviously, we hear a lot about the foster care system. Is it broke? Is it doing okay? There's a, at this moment in time, there are approximately seven thousand children in the foster care system in West Virginia alone. And we know we have people from Southwestern Pennsylvania, Garrett County, Maryland, watching this and across maybe even the country learning about this foster initiative, this foster care initiative. And really what I want to focus on today is the, the child's experience and what they're going through. I feel like there's so much talk about the, the issue of um, you know, we need more foster parents. We need people to really take these kids in, but, we're not really getting to the heart of the matter, which is these children need help. They need love. They need care. So I'd like to do a, a sort of an around the horn style of comments. And I'd like to start with Megan. And I would just love to, to hear your take on, you know, the overview of the problem. Where are we today? And you're, uh, you're up in Uniontown, Pennsylvania. Talk a little bit about what's going on. So a lot of things that we're experiencing up here is just there's, you know, like you said, there's not enough foster homes, but there's also not enough kinship care, people who are willing to step up, uh, family members who are burnt out from situations inside their families that they can't provide those supports. And so it is very important for, for people to want to step up and give back to these kids who, who need some love and some unconditional support to go to. Yeah, absolutely. Carmen, it appears that you're sort of on the front lines, if you will, dealing with these kids in crisis, these families in crisis. Talk about it from your perspective. What are you seeing out there in terms of the problem? 
Yeah, similar to just like Megan said. Um, so when a client gets removed from the home, um, there's emergency foster workers where, you know, if it's midnight and it's in the middle of the night, there's some um, foster parents that can take kids in the middle of the night or they're just kind of more temporary. And then until they get placed with the more permanent foster family for whether that's a few days, weeks, could be months. Um, and so uh, as a mental health therapist, my agency, we get referrals directly. We get a lot of referrals directly from DHHR, from Child Protective Services in West Virginia. And we cover nine counties in the northeast central, north central West Virginia. So I go to Taylor, Mon, and Preston. And um, sometimes a child is just placed and that first week, the case manager will make a referral for um, the child to receive trauma therapy. And so um, we try to be there within a week or two weeks to do an intake and assess, um, do a social history and just to see where the child's at, see what other support services are needed. Um, and so um, most of my clients have a history with child protective services, either being in foster care or I also see many parents who um, the court may order them to receive therapy, whether that's for addiction or, um, you know, whatever issues, a lot of PTSD, um, anger, and just learning, you know, it's hard to cope with life. And so you add a bunch of extra stressors in life, um, like addiction. And um, a lot of it is just lacking, um, you know, the children need help and parents need help with learning how to cope and regulate their emotions and, um, you know, just deal with life. And so uh, that's what, so I see parents whose children are removed, they're working towards reunification, um, and I also, um, we do community-based, so I go into the homes or schools um, and see the clients. We do have an office in Morgantown, but it's majority of my clients, I go to them. And so uh, the needs are great, and we do needs assessments, and we can um, refer for other services. But um, I do work a lot with a foster care agency or CPS with the parents, with the guardian at Linem, with the courts. I've had to testify in courts. Um, before. And so it's, the need is great. There's a lot, definitely a lot of aspects to it, but um, there's definitely support and it's just about getting that support to, to the child and um, just being a listening ear and um, unconditional love can go a long, long ways. Absolutely. Carmen, is, are there any commonalities in terms of the most common uh, indicators for these traumas that these kids are going through? In other words, you mentioned addiction. Is there something that's the primary driver of, of the cases you're seeing right now? Um, yeah, so the opioid epidemic in West Virginia is a big one. Um, families, a lot of, um, I have a lot of children that are placed with relatives or they're in, um, you know, with their grandparents. And so if they are not um, in foster care with a foster parent that they didn't know, there's a lot of family member relatives um, that I see. And I've noticed, um, I have my theories on like, you know, there's definitely patterns of, um, you know, low income, poverty, um, a lot of uh, parents, single, single parent households as well. And um, kind of a generational, generational issues, um, lack of access or we're community-based practice because a lot of our clients don't have vehicles to get to places and so they can't make appointments. So we try to go directly to them. So then there's no excuse, you know, for them missing a, an appointment with therapy. We also, during the pandemic, do a lot of telehealth. Sure. Um, the pandemic kind of exasperated it with children being home 
more. Um, I have a lot of clients um, that are students in school and they just um, they either because of lack of Wi-Fi or if they are with their parents, um, you know, they don't have all the support that they need at home to keep up with their schoolwork. And so unfortunately, I've had several clients just there's there are those statistics that just haven't shown up for class and are failing. And, it's, mm-hmm. um, and then we have truancy on them now, you know, and their parents are having to go to court because their child's not um, going to school. So it's um, there's a mix, but for sure, poverty, single parent households um, and um, just, um, yeah, just wanting to give them hope. <laughs> there's yeah. definitely hope out there. Absolutely. And well, I think sounds- a lot of people don't feel you know, mm-hmm. I, I kind of think of just listening to you, Carmen, it's, you know, it's the epidemic of the epidemic. You have the opioid crisis and then there's this foster epidemic that's kind of tailing right on that. And then you add in these other factors of poverty and, and single family homes and things of that nature. And it just exacerbates the problem. Megan, I want to come back to you real quick. And are you, are, are you, I see you're shaking your head. Uh, were you, uh, are you kind of in agreement seeing those same types of things in your practice as well? Mm-hmm. I feel like drug and alcohol is probably the biggest contributor to most of my children that I work with in foster care. Wow. Um, but also the low so- socioeconomic status, single parent household. Those are themes that just run through the whole. Yeah. Thank you for, for weighing in on that. Mm-hmm. Pastor Matt, uh, as the lead pastor at River Ridge Church in Charleston, West Virginia, talk a little bit about from what, what it is you're seeing in that part of, of the state of West Virginia if you could. And then also I'd like to hear, um, you know, from a foster parent perspective, because you are an active foster parent. I'd like to hear, you know, kind of the story of why you got involved with this uh, initiative. Yeah. So, I mean, I would completely echo that there are, is a great need for foster families um, to step up and foster families of all sorts. I mean, we've, in our travels, we, uh, and kind of, you just get to know folks who are doing the same thing. You know, we met a 26 year old woman and her 27 year old husband who don't have any kids, three dogs, and they foster. Uh, we've got people who've got kids who are kind of, you know, between five and 12 and they foster. We've met grandparents who foster. We are um, kind of approaching empty nest phase um, and we're fostering. So it's all different kinds of folks that foster. And, um, so we've only been at this since uh, August, uh, but we got, just to give you an idea of the need, we got certified on Monday, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, we got calls for six different placements in those wow. three days. Wow. Um, and, and, and we didn't take any of those placements, and I can talk more about that later if that's helpful. Um, so there's a, there's a huge need. Um, but for us, how we got into foster care, um, I would point to a a couple of things. One is just from a biblical kind of perspective. You see that the theme of caring for widows and orphans all throughout the scripture. Um, the more I read and the more I see it, you see, you know, Old Testament, New Testament about justice and care. And, and that's where, um, that's where it just the people of God often fell short and God kind of got on them and said, look, you need to care for people. I'm, I'm glad you go to church, but you need to care for people. Not exactly how he puts it, but, <laughs> but that's the, that's the essence of it. Um, and yeah. I see that everywhere. So that for us was a, a big part of it. Um, 
the other kind of two other pieces, one was, and this is sort of strange, but um, so we have a daughter who's 24. Um, I might cry a little bit because I'm kind of passionate about this. I brought tissues. If anybody needs one, I got one. Um, but she said to um, my wife and I, she said, you guys, sorry. She said, you guys would make amazing foster parents. Mm. Um, mm. And that, that really spoke to us, you know? Um, and I kind of use that as an encouragement. Those that might be watching, if you know somebody that you think would make an amazing foster parent, tell them, cause you might be that instrument to make that happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the third reason is it's a little more humorous is um, we had an international exchange student live with us uh, for about a year. Uh, and he came from Germany, he came from a very wealthy family and he was doing great. And he's just having a neat U.S. experience. And um, and we were glad to have him and, and all that. But I, after he left, I was like, he doesn't really need a home. But there are thousands of kids mm-hmm. in West Virginia who need a home. And yeah. so that was kind of part of it also. Yeah. Well, Pastor Matt, thank you for sharing that uh, that experience for you know, and kind of the the why behind the reason you and your your family is doing this, you and your wife, and I think that's just awesome. So, Carmen, I'd like to come back to you because uh, you talked about CPS, and you know, I think about because I really want to get to the heart of understanding, you know, the real um, what it's like for a kid you know, a CPS officer has been called to the home, maybe a police officer or law enforcement, and there is a situation going on. And here's this mm-hmm. five, six-year-old child that is just like, what? I mean, it's got to be just, a, a, we talk about traumatic experience. I can't even imagine mm-hmm. something that, that could be that as traumatic as that, right? You're, 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 your father, your mother strung out, you're, they're maybe unconscious, the, uh, the ambulance is there or something. Talk a little bit about like in real terms, like what is it, what does a, a typical uh, case look like? What are the issues that these, these children are facing? Yeah, it's really heartbreaking. Um, so I've had a lot of sessions where I process with the student or with the child um, about what that, that's like. In the first few sessions, I want to build rapport. So we play games and do things. I just want to make sure that they know they can trust me. And of course, you know, what they say to me, it's all confidential. So I let them know that a few times kind of through the first few sessions, like, you know, just letting you know, unless you're going to be harmed, I don't want anybody to be hurt. So that's the only time I I have to say something if somebody's going to be hurt, or if you want to hurt yourself. Um, So building that rapport, but I get to the point where we talk about they're removed, and they share vivid detail of, you know, the police coming or their dad, or uncle or somebody getting taken to jail or an altercation that occurred. And um, it's heartbreaking Um, as they talk about it. Usually they're removed so quickly. Um, I've talked to foster parents and even um, other relatives. My sister's a foster mom in um, California, in Los Angeles. And it's similar stories, but they only have enough time usually to leave with what they have on their back. If they have any chance, it's Um, their belongings are put in a trash bag, usually a black trash bag. Um, And they're taken to either DHHR to sit. I had um, when they could, it was such, it was in the middle of the night where the caseworker had to sleep in the DHHR office with the student or with the, with the client 
until they found a home. The client was there for two days before they could find a home. And so they talk about, you know, being bounced. Sometimes it's just a temporary family. And so they go to other families and um, each time it's a, you know, it's traumatic. Just, I could imagine being a young child and, you know, being taken from the home, you know, to a different home. And many of these clients, some of them moved around a lot. Um, part of, you know, depending on the trauma they experience, they're used to kind of moving. Um, they don't like to get attached to people. There could be, um, you know, there's definitely an adjustment period where they have to be, sometimes they switch schools, switch friends. So it's not just the home and their, their family life. It's a whole new environment. Everything, so, everything has been mm-hmm. just completely disrupted in their lives. Yeah. No stability. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the most, the more stability you can give them, um, you know, and I talk to the foster family, usually after a session, if I'm in the foster family's home or by phone, um, just kind of helping them to, you know, be able to talk and just listen. A lot of it is just listening, letting the child know that you're there for them whenever they're ready. Um, I've sat in some sessions where the kid doesn't want to talk. They're just, uh, you know, they're, I, I have a little thing of sand. They're just kind of playing and I'm, you know, talk, we start singing songs and anything to get them more comfortable. And when they're ready, they open up and it's really amazing when you turn that corner and they are able to talk about, um, the things cause it's, there's healing when you talk about it. And so, um, it's, uh, it's really, um, it's a privilege to do, to do the job, but it's definitely hard. And there's a lot of turnover, unfortunately, as well with caseworkers and, um, the, the job there's high burnout, um, and so that's tough too, because the child gets used to somebody and then, um, it, they, they change or there's, you know, a lot of interns that work with DHH, um, are, and so there's a lot of things that are, you know, the more for foster families to be consistent and just, um, you know, showing love, love goes a long way. No doubt. Um, Jim, Thank could you. I jump in on the, the yes. trauma thing? Yes, please. Um, so we um, had a little boy come to us. Uh, it's been about five weeks or so. Mm-hmm. And um, so the first night that he was with us, and he's 10 years old, and um, he cried himself to sleep, you know, just and 10 years old. And, and, you know, my wife was in there just, you know, rubbing his back and until he fell asleep and realized, like, he he reacts like that in terms of, because of the trauma in his life. And, and for me as a foster dad, I mean, that was hard to, to deal with and, and just, it was emotional, you know, and, but it was because of the, the trauma, the crap that he dealt with in his life. And, um, but at that same time, I had sort of an aha moment because, uh, so this was like about five weeks ago or so, um, back in the fall, we had a, a an eight-year-old boy who was with us. Um, and he never cried. Um, but man, he was a holy terror. Like he would get so mad and he would throw things and destroy <laughs> things. And just like, I mean, we kind of joked that he was raised by wolves. Cause I mean, he was just, mm. he would get really, really angry at stuff. Um, but when the boy came, um, a few weeks ago, it, it was just like a light bulb went off. Um, and Carmen, I'm sure you have seen this, but like, both of them experienced really bad trauma in their lives. And one of them just goes nuts and lashes out in anger. Mm-hmm. And the other one cries himself to sleep. Mm-hmm. And it's just, 
it helped me to um it helped me to have more compassion for the boy we had in the fall because when he gets mad at me i kind of get mad back <laughs> um but i recognize that they're both have trauma and just junk in their lives and respond differently so yeah and a lot of times i've, I've worked with clients that um they they react and they react 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 and act angry and I've come to find that most of the time they're acting that way because before they could be pushed away by you, they feel like they have to do something on purpose. So that way, if they get a reaction, if they get yelled at or something, they know why. And it kind of gives them a sense of control where they feel like, um, you know, the other thing is they don't want to be hurt again. And so they act out, act out. So that way, if they get um, rejected or if they feel rejected or if they you know, get, you know, whatever happened, you know, they're thinking about, you know, things that happened in the past. They, it just gives them a sense of control. Like, okay, well, I, I, they did that. They said that because I just acted this way. And, um, those kids, I mean, I think it, I had one kid, every time I would show up, he would just like throw in shoes at the door. Didn't want to talk to me like yelling. (laughs) And I would just stand up there and say, okay, I'm here whenever you want to talk. And by the end, I think it was nine months. I worked with him. And at the end, um, he ended up moving, um, away and, um, he gave me a big hug crying. Like, thank you so much. I'm sorry. I was so mean to you. Um, a lot of the kids, when I first talked to them, they're pretty mean and they, um, you know, and you just gotta love them. They're hurting. And so, Um, there's that quote, hurt people, hurt people. And when these kids are hurting, they, they hurt you. They, they say things that are, they know how to, you know, say things to hurt your feelings and act angry. And, um, but yeah. Megan, I'd like to have you talk about uh, trauma a little bit more before we start talking in, you know, moving into the sort of the, the solution to these problems. But I can imagine that one of the traumas that many of these children face is, and Car- Carmen kind of talked about moving from family to family. So do you see that uh, in, in the cases that you're dealing with where you have these, these young children who are in these desperate situations that are removed from the home, they end up in the system and they move from family to family. That's got to be a, a massive trauma mm-hmm. in their lives as well. Yes. Each move for the child is a trauma. So th- if you think about it, when they're removed from their biological home, that's a trauma in and of itself, because while it wasn't healthy, that's their normal. And then they move to their foster home or their kinship home. And that's a trauma because there's new rules, new expectations, new people, and they don't know if they can trust them or be safe there. And so it's a lot of testing And then when they are testing, often that leads to another broken home and to another movement. I've worked with kids who have been in as much as 20, 25 foster homes. And those are broken attachments that they've had in each home. And, you know, we have to go back as therapists. Carmen Mm -hmm. can probably attest to this and work on healing those wounds and work on helping them, you know, realize that they can trust us and invest in a relationship with a foster family to have stability in their home. So trauma is such a spectrum, you know, how, how Matt, you were saying one kid's screaming and throwing in the tantrum and the other one's crying, you know, 
those are our like dorsal vagal responses. Those are fight or flight. So the kid that's fighting you is the same as the one that's shutting down and crying. You know, they both are having an experience outside of their normal comfort zone and they're both begging Mm -hmm. for help. And we as, as parents or as the helpers in their lives need to, to see that and respond with compassion and unconditional love and respect in regard to those, even though they're making us angry, but they want to know that we are going to respond and that they can trust us. Megan, is it mm-hmm. the same if you have multiple siblings in a family, like say there's a, a, a brother and two sisters in the same family, they're all removed from at the same time and they get split up. Is that kind of the same types of trauma? I mean, that's another, you know, mm-hmm. other dilemma that you're having to deal with another trauma, if you will. Yeah. Sometimes it is another trauma. Sometimes it's actually one of the best things that could happen to the kids is for them to not be together because a lot of the time or some of the time I should say the kids are traumatizing each other. Um, you know, in the sense of sexual abuse, sometimes they're acting out on each other and, and things like that. So it becomes safer for them to not be around each other. Um, and you see them thrive in the separation, but it is also a trauma because you have to mourn the loss of that close relationship and the fact that that relationship isn't healthy for you. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate you shedding some light on that. That's, uh, that's really interesting. And, and it just really goes to the, to the, you know, we've been talking about trauma for the first part of this episode. And I think it's really important to set that tone. I'd like to shift our thoughts now and talking a little bit more about, you know, when a loving foster parent enters the picture, somebody like Pastor Matt Santon and his wife, and they join into this group and say, okay, we want to become foster parents. What does that impact mean to this child? You know, Carmen, you talked about the impact of love. Okay. And obviously, you know, that is, um, that is one of our commandments is to love each other, love one another, right? Jesus told us that. How, how does that when that parent enters into the system and they say, okay, we're going to accept this foster child into our home. We're going to love them and care for them. And we're going to train them up the way that they that needs to happen. What does that do for that child? It's, it's so beautiful. Um, I've gone to several, um, like the first week the child gets placed and I go and introduce myself to foster parent. I usually talk to them on the phone first and then, you know, kind of talk about what's going to happen. And I go and um, it, a lot of times with the initial stuff, with the, the initial paperwork and assessments, um, it takes a while because the foster parent is just getting to know them as well. So some of the questions, I'm just trying to get some history. And so, um it's, uh, it, there's definitely, I see the nerves and I always, you know, acknowledge the, you know, the, the love and, um, service it is and what an awesome thing it is. My personally, I have a heart for fostering as well in the future. And, um, it's just a beautiful thing because you see the foster family excited, but nervous and they don't want to do the wrong thing. You know, they've gone through a whole training and, um, seeing their being there with their very first foster child is, is kind of exciting, um, for me. And I've, you know, there's different things that they go through. And I think for sure, just 
being loving, um, knowing that they might get pushed back in the beginning. They're going to get tested. The child's maybe not used to following rules or not used to a bedtime. Um, I've seen some kids, they don't want to take a shower because they, they were never, they never had to take a shower. Bath time could be um, rough sometimes early on. And, you know, the foster kids are seeing what they can get away with. And um, so it's, it's tough. It's challenging in the beginning. Um, but then they get the groove of it and it's beautiful to see the relationship blossom. Um, mm. I've seen foster families who were open to adoption. And so there's some, you know, you can go in and be like a respite. You can be emergency. You could do, um, you know, help foster families on the weekends. Um, and so, um, but I've worked with several families who were open to adoption and followed through. Um, the child became adoptable. And so it's beautiful. Um I got invited to a couple adoption parties and um, it's, uh, you know, of course there's ups and downs with any parent child relationship. And then of course you have, you know, the stressors of like therapists coming in or case managers coming in. Um, sometimes there's, you know, other, um, other programs coming in. Um, but um, you know, I'm sure as a foster parent, you know, you, you kind of learn the system. You might have a few, you know, with turnover, but I think just, you know, it's a journey. It's a roller coaster. There's ups and downs, but it really is beautiful to see when the foster family, they just, I think the only qualification I think is just to be loving and show love and be supportive and listen. And um, the relationship, you know, it's beautiful when, when it blossoms and, um, Absolutely. Yeah. Megan, from your perspective, what does what does it mean to to these children when that foster parent, this foster uh, family takes these children into their home coming from this traumatic experience? What does that mean to to that child? And what are some things you've seen like in real you know, practical matters that, that, that have come about? Well, I've, I've seen the gamut of, of kids appreciate it and the ones that, that don't appreciate it. Um, but just like any other child, they, they test the boundary of, is this genuine? Are you in this for the right reasons? Um, and when they do see that, that they are there for the right reason and, and that they do genuinely care about them and want the best for them, you see these kids change and blossom. I mean, you'll see their behavior change. And sometimes it feels like it's just overnight. Like you'll like some, some of the kids I work with have a lot of bad dreams and bedwetting and things like that. And that will go away as they feel comfortable and safe and loved. Um, you'll see them thrive, and want to be involved in things where before they wanted to just be in their room and not be involved. And, you know, they start really expressing themselves and sharing their feelings and, you know, they blossom into these awesome little people who they were shielding before because they were scared to be rejected. And it, it just is a beautiful thing when, when they really do get that connection with a foster parent. Yeah. Pastor Matt, what, what's been your experience? I mean, obviously how you've been doing uh, or serving as an active foster parent, you and your wife in your home uh, as empty nesters, uh, what's for about a year or so, a little over a little less and almost empty nesters. We're trying okay. to get the last ones out, but yeah, uh, <laughs> just go ahead and kick them out, you know, get them, get them out there So talk a little bit about your experience and, and what, you know, in, in real practical terms, like real 
you know, obviously our show is called Real Life. Give us a yeah. real life ex- experience of what that's meant to you and your family. So, so Jim, I would say this, and I'll be like right up front, like yeah. I have my recruiting hat on. Like if I can talk to somebody who's listening and talk you into foster parenting, like that's good. So know that I have my recruiting hat on a little bit. Um, but one of the things, and before we started this, like I, we have some friends at Foster and I asked them tons and tons of questions and, you know, I mean, even sort of offensive questions, like, can you give a kid back if you don't like him? I mean, cause I just want to know everything. That's practical um, stuff, right? Yeah. But here, so this was for me very helpful in getting us over that line is um, part of the, um, in, in West Virginia, it's called pride training. It might be called something else in Pennsylvania or Maryland, but um, you go through these classes and, and so forth. Um, but then at the end, um, your foster care agency, so our agency, KVC, and I, I assume this is true with all of them, um, but you fill out what's called a match tool. And it's about, oh gosh, five pages long. Mm. And you answer all these questions about preferences of kids. So um, are you comfortable with uh, sexual trauma, you know, from five to zero? Um boys or girls, um, physical abuse. I mean, all of these questions, um, multiple children, race. I mean, just, you know, mm-hmm. things that uh, teenagers deal with in bedwetting. I mean, there's everything on this thing. And for me, that was very um, helpful because mm-hmm. wh- when it comes down to it, you don't, uh, like if you decide to be a foster parent, you're not signing a blank piece of paper. Like if you call, I'll take the child. Like they call and they say, we have a child or children that meet what you are looking for. Or they'll say, well, we have two children. One meets the kind of what you're looking for. One is a little bit outside your comfort zone. Do you want them? And then we, as the foster parents have the, um, kind of the right, the whatever. I mean, it's on us to say, yeah, this is a good match or no, it's not a good match. Um, and our um, foster agency has been really gracious with us because we said no. I mean, we've had four boys, uh, but we probably said no to four times that many that just weren't the right fit. We have boy, our, uh, we have teenage boys, and so we didn't really want girls in the home and just things like that. And so that, if that helps put somebody at ease, um, that your foster agency works with you to get good matches. And so for us, we've had two 10 year old boys and an eight year old boy. And then we had a 17 year old boy. That was a little different situation, but like, you know, like I'm a dad, I love to play ball in the yard and ride bikes and go on hikes and, you know, and stuff like that. And so for me, that age is really fun. Um, you know, my wife would probably prefer to have a little four-year-old girl that wants to sit on her lap and read all day. Um, you know, and that may happen down the road. Um, but for us, the, the kids have come into our home have been good fits. Um, not, not all easy all the time, but good fits because you have the ability to say no. Um, and there's some people that want, you know, special needs kids and there's other parents that can't deal with that. And so, Mm. Anyway, that's kind of been my experience. Well, Matt, you know, I, I think that's that's really great stuff. I mean, it's it's, it's encouraging just to hear, like, it, you know, you're a pastor, but yet you still had some of these questions that are like really pragmatic, you know, and say how you know what how does this all work? Tell us a little bit about like as a dad, 
as a foster dad now of several uh, young men, what what has it meant to you? I mean, in, in your in your journey of life, what what is this doing to your fulfillment? I guess. Um. Well, I'll start with this. I thought that I had mastered patience as a part of my life, and I hadn't. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, there's no question that it is difficult. Like, I, you know, I get less sleep. I do less stuff that I want to do. Um, I've learned that, gosh, I do have a little bit of anger issues that kind of spurt out in me um, and that kind of stuff. And so... But, you know, for me as a follower of Christ, like, I want to grow spiritually. And these kids are helping me to grow spiritually. And I like that, that aspect of it. Um, You know, but the other side is the reward side of it, of recognizing that for a time, we're going to be a stable home for these kids. Yeah. And they may be with us for a couple of weeks or a, a number of months. Um, but, and, and our desire, and and this is another question I asked early on, um, is like, uh, our desire is to foster a successive number of kids. So we, we're not interested in adoption. We want, you know, if a kid is going to be returned to their family, then we'll hold them and love them until they can do that. If a kid, um, can't ever return to their family because the parental rights have been terminated, we'll keep them and love them until an adoptive family can be found. Um, but we want to just love on them for however long they're with us and be, I mean, I guess the right word is a stable family for a while. Um, so, so Matt, if, if if it's okay to ask this, what, what's been the outcome so far and just under a year, you've been, you've fostered several boys. What, how, how are they doing first of all? And, and can you share with us, you know, how, you know, what that's looked like in terms of the outcome so far. Yeah. So um, the boy we had with us in the fall, who is eight, um, they eventually, uh, DHHR in the county that he was from, eventually found uh, a kinship placement for him. So he went from us to a kinship placement. Um, and uh, that seems to be going relatively well. He's, a, he's hard, but they, they kind of knew that going in. Uh, the second one and w- that was with us in the fall, he was 17. He actually went to live with an uncle in Atlanta. Um, so, and he's doing great. Hmm. Uh, we have two with us uh, right now. One is available for adoption. Um, and we're going to meet a potential adoptive family. Dang it. My wife is the crier. <laughs> Sorry. Um, tomorrow we're going to meet them as a potential adoptive family for him. So that's super exciting. And then the other boy, um, he's with us temporarily until his dad can kind of get on his feet with uh, getting a place to live and utilities and kind of go through a couple of jump through a couple of hoops. Um, but that seems to be Hmm. in the works. Um, so that's, that's where they're going in terms of that. Um, but just in terms of these boys' development, I mean, I would say that all of them have learned something from us. And, um, and I, uh, you know, here's an interesting, like, with, with the one that we had in the fall, like, we have four kids, and I, they're great kids. Like, I mean, you know, by my standards, but I think by regular standards, they're like, like good kids. But we raised them from, like, birth. And so bringing an eight-year-old, it was like, 
this kid is wild. And so, um, so it was interesting. We just like, we had rules for everything. Like don't, don't eat pizza here. Don't push. Don't do this. Don't do this. Do this. Don't. And when we had like 50 rules and this kid, I think was like, Oh my gosh, there's so many rules. And so we when, uh, we brought in the, the 10 year old boy a couple of months ago, we decided, you know what, we need to throw out all these rules and like just have a couple of rules. And so we actually stole, uh, so we only have three rules and we stole them all from our church. And I think Chester Ridge may have the same thing, but I need to make the wise choice, treat others the way I want to be treated and I can trust God no matter what. And so we've tried to ingrain those. And, um, so when he came, we talked about those a lot. And then about a week and a half later, two weeks later, this other boy came and as he's getting out of the car, he goes, this is a great place. There's only three rules. <laughs> he told him the three rules. <laughs> That's great. That's that was, awesome. Uh, Megan, yeah. I want to, I want to toss it to you. Uh, you know, uh, Pastor Matt talked about um, these kinship home placements, and and I think like that's part of the journey, right? Is finding a permanent home because the foster could become an adopt an adoptive home, but really what we're trying to do is reunite this family reunification, right? If it's possible. But the kinship placement, talk a little bit about what, the, I, I, I know what that means. I think you, you guys all know what that means. But for folks who don't know, talk a little bit about what the kinship placement is. So kinship placement is anybody that's blood related into the family. Sometimes it even can extend out to like step family members or even family friends. So people who are interconnected into the family unit that can provide that connection and support into the family and allow them to create, create and maintain that relationship with their parental units. Yeah. So thank you for that clarification. So uh, Carmen, I'd like to talk to you and ask you this question and we'll kind of maybe have a discussion around this as, as we go through, we have, we've identified that the problem really, which is these traumatic situations that these children are in. And we mm -hmm. all know that that is not the way it's supposed to be. You know, we're to love each other. We're supposed to take care of, like pastor Matt said, the widows and the orphans, but, in our society here in West Virginia, in Pennsylvania, Southwest Pennsylvania, Western Maryland, the, the, our, our reach for the, the Ridge Church and across the state of West Virginia, I think of um, the situation where we want to get these kids back into these loving homes. The foster mm -hmm. provides that stopgap measure. Sometimes it can be the long term, but the stopgap measure to to properly train up these these children and, and provide love in a supportive environment, a stable environment. Talk a little bit about that journey back to reunite, reuniting with their biological family, their parents, the reunification, if you will, or the, the kinship placement or towards adoption. Talk a little bit about those kinds of concepts and what you're seeing out there in terms of, you know, what these children can, can hope for. Yeah, I'd say, um, Probably half of my kids um, are in a kinship situation. And just a few months ago, um, it was a beautiful success story. There's three siblings. They were all got to stay together in a kinship. Um, sometimes they do have to split up if, you know, depending on if they're in foster care or if the kinship doesn't have, you know, the adequate or doesn't feel like they could take care of all of them. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes, like Megan said, sometimes it is best to split them up. I've had cases where there was 
um, sexual abuse going on. And so they needed to separate for both of them to heal. Um, and then later maybe come back together. But, um, I was working with a mom and so, um, or I I actually have another mom right now her, she has three kids. Um, she struggled with addiction. She's still, she's doing a lot better, but I think, um, the compassion for the children, um, until you hear the story of the parent, a lot of times it's so hard and we get angry, like how, what is going on? This is an epidemic. And then I talked to the parents who, you know, they didn't have support. They, their car broke down in rural West Virginia. If you don't have a car, you can't get to work. And so electricity gets shut off and then children are going to school hungry or, you know, with dirty clothes and then a CPS referral is made. And then it's just like a domino effect of, um, you know, children get removed. And then, you know, the parents, um, I have such compassion and empathy where they have to work extra hard to, if there's a drug or alcohol problem, because that's what they're, how they're coping with the stress of not having money, not having a car, having children that you can't properly take care of. And they love their children, um, but they don't have the skills or the support or the resources to properly care for them. And uh, so I have one mom, she's doing so great. She's uh, clean, she got her own place. She has a car, she has a job and she's having visits because you can work towards having, um, you know, visits either supervised and then they go to unsupervised visits with the children and then overnight weekends, maybe one night, two nights. Um, and so um, it's beautiful, you know, reunification. We, we all want just the best for the, for the child. And, um, you know, the goal is reunification. In some cases that can't happen. Um, but having worked with children and with the parents, and all the steps they have to go through. Sometimes they're doing anger management classes, parenting. They get um, drug tested two, three times a week or randomly. Um, and so when they can work towards reunification, um, I see them with their children and I continue with therapy as they adjust back because they have there's a whole readjustment period again. And sometimes it's traumatic. Um, a lot of times they can still keep in touch with the foster family once they've been reunified. And especially for the younger kids that really got attached to foster families, it's a beautiful thing to see bio parents and foster, you know, talk and connect or, you know, engage at birthday parties. And um, and then eventually we can successfully discharge. But so it's kind of a process. Um, but that's kind of the step of, you know, if or the parent loses their the parental rights, sometimes they surrender their rights. Um, or they're in jail for a long time and they um, end up relinquishing their rights. Um, and then the child becomes adoptable um, if there's no kinship and if the parents' rights are revoked. And then which case, you know, then they're adoptable. And sometimes the foster family um, switches or um, so it's just there's a whole bunch of situations um, that I've seen and that can happen. But I, I like what. Um, pastor said about, you know, you can go in knowing what you want, you know, some foster families, you know, they just want to be a temper. They just want to be a respite on the weekends. Um, there's, there's, you know, supporting the foster families and children. Um, there's many ways you can do that. And so, um, yeah. Absolutely. Pastor Matt, I'd like to, to throw it to you now and, and just ask, you know, in practical terms, what are the steps? How do you become a foster parent? I mean, obviously I'm, I'm asking you to put your recruitment hat back on. Uh, how, how do we get people to, to really um, do something, to take a step 
uh, it doesn't like you were kind of talking, it doesn't have to be a leap. It yeah. can be a step. What's the, what's some things that people can do that are listening to say, Hey, I want to make a difference in the life of a child. Yeah. Well, I would say first kind of big picture, it seems to me like there's probably three or maybe four um, types of people who want to, in terms of what their goal are. So there's some people who are just foster only. So that's, that's us. We don't have a desire to adopt. Um, there are some folks who are adoption only. Um, and, and those folks tend to be people that don't want to foster. Well, the other category is foster to adopt. So you foster and then you adopt. Um, but there are some folks that don't want to do that because they're afraid of the heartbreak. Like if I foster this two-year-old or this three-year-old or this eight-year-old and I fall in love with them and then he goes or she goes back to parents or kin, it's just going to rip my heart out. And so there are some people who, who don't want to go through that. And I totally get that. Um, but if that's you, you can just say, we only want to foster kids who are adoptable. Um, you know, and so that's the case, you know, so we have the one who's with us who is adoptable. Um, and so there's a family that's going to take him. So that's, and then the fourth category would be what's called respite care. Um, and that's where you watch, uh, or you, you take a child for anywhere between a night and probably a week. Um, and, but to do any of those, to do any of that, it's still the same, um, steps. So respite while it's, the least commitment or the shortest amount of time, uh, you still have to go through the pride training classes and the background check and all that kind of stuff. Yep. Um, I guess the other would be emergency care. Um, I think Carmen mentioned emergency care. That would be kind of fifth one where you would say, Hey, we'll keep kids for a couple of days until you find a more permanent uh, foster care place for them. So, you know, that's the kind of the big picture, but yeah. you know, the, the other thing is, and I love what Chestnut Ridge is doing um, in, in a pretty organized fashion is saying there's a lot of roles for a lot of people beyond just foster parenting. Um, and uh, just a couple examples of that. So we have a, a dear friend um, named Betsy. And basically, we take um, one of our foster kids to her house every Wednesday night. So it's date night for us. It's a standing thing. Um, and he loves going to her house and, and it's, it's like, like she doesn't have rules. Like, it's like going to grandma's house. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, very little rules unless you're like hurting yourself or in the furniture or whatever, but like, it's to be spoiled for a couple hours. Exactly. Exactly. It's going like going to grandma's house. And so they do a lot. She's not a grandma. She'd be offended with that. But, um, but you know, so they do that or they'll go out to dinner or they'll go, I mean, just so that awesome. type of thing. Um, yeah. And, you know, Matt, and I just want to jump in here because I, I, I'm pretty familiar with the Foster WV initiative that you're talking about at Chestnut Ridge Church. And yeah, it's neat because it's a model where the church comes around these families that are fostering, right, to equip them, to support them, to love them, yeah. to love the children, to pray for them. That could be a very easy step that anybody could do today. Like, let's just start praying for these fa these foster children and these kids that are hurting and the traumatized. Pray for the foster families. Yeah. Pray for the adoptive families and the kinship families. I mean, these are just incredible 
situations that people are dealing with. And that's an easy thing we can all do is pray for them. That, you know, and, and things like preparing a meal or, I mean, we're, we're doing that with one of the families in our church here in Morgantown. And, and just the other night we, we, uh, got some pizzas and took it to them. You know, it doesn't have to be a fancy time consuming thing, just a, mm-hmm. a little act of caring and love and support to Carmen's point. I mean, I just love the way you, you, you talk about this because it is a game changer when you're able to come around and love these, these people, right. These yeah. people in our communities. And yeah. it, that's what we're called to do. Honestly. I mean, that's yeah. just, it's simple, right? So I, I would like to, to close us out today in this session, just kind of, again, go around the horn and I'd just like to um, maybe have each one of you guys talk a little bit about just a, a word of encouragement um, because we've talked a lot about the trauma of these children. We've talked a lot about the solution, but I, I would like to just hear some, uh, some words of hope uh, of some wisdom that you can bring to the conversation of uh, for, for families who were, um, who are out there dealing, you know, these foster mm-hmm. families uh, for the children and then also for folks who are sitting on the sidelines, finding a way that they can help make a difference. Megan, I'd like to start with you if that's okay. Sure. So my word of encouragement would be go with your gut, you know, mm-hmm. just yeah. love them, you know, follow, follow your heart, make sure you're meeting these kids where they are. And if you're doing that, you're doing a great job. Um, and then for those sitting on the sideline, please just think about what you can do to help. If there is extra clothes or extra toys that you have laying around or help of a neighbor that you could go over and just say, Hey, can they come over and play for a little bit? You know, building, you know, outside community connections for these kids is just as important as being a foster parent. They need those things too. Yeah, absolutely. Carmen. Yeah, I'd say um, love. I always go back to love. Love just goes such a long way to, um, you know, no matter if you encounter foster children or whatever you decide, um, love. I mean, that's probably the only prerequisite you need to go into this. And um, so just be, you know, open-minded and love. And for those sitting on the sidelines, I think there's so many things, you know, if you're not ready to, uh, you know, be a foster parent or go through the classes. You can also just take the classes and get that education and knowledge and, you know, see if, if you know, just learn more about it. Um, do some research. Um, if you're wanting to support, um, yeah, taking meals. I know my mo- mom's group, CRC uh, Mops and Moms Next, we've, um, every year we support um, local foster families uh, awesome. filling up, you know, getting diapers, just getting a bunch of needs together and taking it to a local foster care closet. Um, we do a Christmas drive. A lot of the kids don't have pajamas or, you know, we, we sent a whole bunch of pajamas to DHHR. So that way, at least when um, they delivered the, every time when a child goes to any foster family, if they just have the clothes on their backs, well, now they have pajamas. Um, we did a luggage drive, you know, with backpacks or suitcases. So that way, um, you know, every child is special and beautiful and important. And so, when they can put their stuff in a nice luggage, it's, you know, a lot better than a trash bag. And so there's different small practical things, taking a meal, if you know, a new foster family that just got a placement, taking them a meal as they adjust. Um, so lots of, lots of smaller, but very much needed practical things to show love in tangible ways. That's um, awesome. Thank you, Carmen. Matt. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I would say, so my encouragement would kind of be the same to those who are in it and those who are kind of on the sidelines thinking, should I get in? And it would be like, be a link in the chain. You know, Mm -hmm. everybody plays their part. And, and uh, like, even for us, we're like, when the kids come to us, we're like, we can't solve all their problems. We can't fix it all, but that's okay. We can be this for them right now. And I think there's a lot of ways for people to just be a link in the chain, whether it's a, you know, Thursday afternoon ice cream buddy with a kid, or, you know, if you have a foster family that's next door in your neighborhood, you know, invite that kid over to to play or to have dinner with you or, you know, those types of things. Just, just be a link in the chain, whatever link makes sense for you. Yeah. My, my takeaway uh, from all this is do something. And uh, just uh, guys, I, I just feel like this is a great place to close out our time here on this panel. I just want to thank our panelists for their time and expertise on this subject of foster care. Carmen Abreu, uh, she's a mental health therapist with Wellspring Family Services in their Morgantown office. Carmen, thanks for being with us today. It was awesome. Thank you for your wisdom. Megan Petak, she's a licensed professional counselor at Momentum Couples and Family Therapy in Uniontown, Pennsylvania. Megan, thank you as well for your service. We appreciate you. And Pastor Matt Santon, he's the lead pastor at River Ridge Church in Charleston. He's also an active foster parent. Guys, I just, uh, just on behalf of Chestnut Ridge Church, just want to thank you for your expertise, the wisdom, the, the guidance, and, and, and really just your openness and honesty in, in speaking to this subject. Thank you guys so much.